This podcast is brought to you by the Toronto School of Management's NCA exam prep program. The TSM NCA prep program offers internationally trained lawyers courses taught by practicing lawyers in Canada, expertly designed study guides, exclusive networking opportunities with top Canadian law firms, and employability sessions arming you with all the tools you need in order to hit the ground running in your pursuit to practicing law in Canada. To find out more about the program, you can email ncaprep at torontosom.ca. aimed at highlighting the personal journeys of professionals and entrepreneurs in Canada, taking a snapshot of the person behind their professional title. This is episode 27. Our 27th guest is Leanne Goldstein. Leanne is a partner at MK Disability Lawyers. She has been a practicing lawyer for 20 years. For 16 years, she has been tirelessly advocating for individuals whose short-term and long-term disability benefits have been wrongfully denied by insurance companies. Leanne has extensive experience litigating every type of disability case against every disability insurer that offers disability benefits in Ontario and has litigated several cases against U.S. disability insurers. Leanne successfully leverages the knowledge she has obtained through many years of litigating against disability insurers to help her clients resolve disability benefits denials in an effective and expeditious manner. Leanne Goldstein was admitted to the Law Society of Ontario in 2002. Prior to that, Leanne practiced as an attorney in a different jurisdiction with a large international law firm. In Ontario, Leanne initially practiced personal injury litigation with one of the top 10 personal injury law firms. She then devoted the next 16 years to representing individuals denied disability benefits at two leading long-term disability practices in Ontario. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Anton. Hi, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. My absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I mean, I've, I know we spoke sort of off air, as it were, about some of the guests that I've had in the past and how now I'm beginning to start branching out and, and bringing all kinds of different professionals into the conversation because what I'm learning is that everybody's journey um, is different and, you know, the end goal is is to complete your licensing exams and or the NCA exams and get practicing law. But there's a lot of little stops along the way. And I think we can all kind of benefit from learning from people who have been there, um, people who may have had different experiences, and now people who are practicing law. Um, so on that, on that note, uh, Leanne, I thought it might be great to start this podcast with you sort of introducing yourself and and kind of getting into a little bit of what inspired you to to want to practice law and and where you're at? Sure. So um, this is a story I've told many times. Mm. Um, but basically, as a young child, I lived on a farm in the South African countryside, 
And farm life was, you know, it was very idyllic. And as a result, we were sort of largely insulated from the political situation that was going on in the country. Mm. When I was about six, I moved to the city. And, you know, at six, you're still largely naive, but I did get some sort of glimpses of reality um, from time to time. My parents at the time had moved to the city because they were pursuing sort of full-time jobs outside of the home. And at that time we had hired a a nanny to assist the family. So we we knew very little about our nanny, um, other than the fact that she had sort of left her own family to care for us. And at the time, that was a you know a massive sacrifice that we never really understood in great detail. Mm. But what happened um, was one Monday morning, very early in the morning, um, our home phone rang. So in those days, we did not have cell phones. We had home phones that right. were connected, and. Um, I overheard a conversation at the time it was my dad who actually speaks multiple African languages and he was talking with someone over the telephone in Zulu and a few Mm. moments later I was sort of hurried into our vehicle and my dad explained to me that our nanny had forgotten her passbook and that we needed to help her so we you know we drove to what was essentially a detention center And I watched my dad negotiate with officials in charge in order to secure our nanny's release. Hmm. And what had actually happened was she had gone home for the weekend and at about, you know, 3 a.m. on the Monday morning, she had started her journey to our home and she wanted to get to work early to ensure that everything was ready, but she'd forgotten her passbook. Hmm. And as a result, she had been arrested. So, yes. So the pass laws, you know, I don't know how many people are familiar with the pass laws, but they were introduced in South Africa, essentially to curb freedom of movement for certain individuals in the community that were designated um, as part of certain racial groups. And initially it had applied only to to men. But in, you know, in the 50s, the system was extended to women until it was eventually abolished in the late 80s. But Basically, you know, I observed the situation and watched as our nanny, you know, was extracted from the detention center and, you know, ushered into our vehicle. And rather than sort of expressing anger at the injustices that had been perpetrated against her, she spent, you know, much of the ride home apologizing profusely to my dad for Mm. having woken him up so early in the morning. So. This for me was, you know, the beginning of my realization that there were injustices in the world and it kind of um, strengthened a desire in me to move forward with a career in law. And even though this was a very, very, very early time in my life, Mm. I think it was the beginning of my desire to pursue a career in law where I thought that I would be able to make some changes to what I perceived to be systems that were, you know, unjust and unfair. Right. Wow. That's a, a really unique sort of genesis to all, to your career, really, to, to have experienced that. And so, I mean, if, if, if that kind of, you know, lit or that was the spark that maybe lit the flame that, that really wanted you you know, you decided to pursue law. Um, what was it that brought you to Canada eventually? 
So again, it was sort of an evolution of what I've just explained and another sort of interesting aspect of what I was going through at the time. So um, I was completing my LLB at the University of the Witwatersrand, mm. which essentially is Nelson Mandela's alma mater. So I'm proud to say that. Wow. And I'm also proud to say I did meet him on one occasion, which wow. was extremely exciting. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so at the time, I was a member of Students for Human Rights, mm -hmm. which was a student organization which essentially had modeled itself on Lawyers for Human Rights. And Lawyers for Human Rights was a nonprofit, non-governmental human rights organization that had been started by a group of activist lawyers. Um, in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a member of Students for Human Rights, we were given the opportunity to act as statement takers and data capturers for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a, a commission that took place at the end of the apartheid era in order to address some of the gross violations of human rights that had taken place. And so, um, you know, what was interesting for me in that process was um, it, it involved sort of taking testimony from individuals who had lived through very significant traumatic experiences. And often those individuals would be sort of disclosing their experiences of gross human rights violations for the very first time. Mm. So for me, you know, I remember being very unprepared for the experience, but right. it was also it was also a pivotal experience for me because it was really at that point in time that I felt that, you know, I could no longer justify living in a place that had encouraged, a you know, a regime that had disregarded basic human rights. And I did not feel that I could remain, you know, in a place that was sort of entrenched in the perpetuation of, you know, social and economic inequities. Mm. So I, you know, I, at that point decided that I wanted to move somewhere where I felt that there would be a greater um, recognition of human rights and, a, you know, a, a place that I felt would be a society that essentially would, you know, in essence, deal with the issues that I felt were so disturbing for me at the time I went through that experience of gathering that evidence for the mm. Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that, you know, that was really what propelled my desire to leave. And Canada was on my radar as being a place where I felt, you know, human rights and um, respect for different individuals was a primary part of the society. Mm. And so it was a draw card. Right. And it, all very interesting, Leanne. I, I, you're a great storyteller, by the way. I, I, I can kind of picture, you know, as a sort of movie in my head now as you're talking about your, your path and your journey to Canada. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, your experiences when you were younger with in, in dealing with and sort of trying to place um, these human rights violations that you were experiencing and you were hearing stories from people who, you know, you had never really been exposed to the kind of atrocities that these people are now explaining to you. So that, that would, I would imagine, you would wear that for quite some time, if not for the rest of your life. And I'm curious, Absolutely. yeah, if, if that kind of experience helped 
well, perhaps not help, but did it fuel your desire to practice law in particular areas like advocacy and support for people who need it? Um, I, I just, I can kind of draw that parallel and I don't know if I'm assuming things or not, but I wonder. Um, no, you're absolutely yeah. accurate in drawing that parallel. I think those initial experiences, which you know took place in my formative years, mm. were driving forces in terms of landing me ultimately in the career that I pursue now, which is advocating for individuals who are dealing, you know, with disabilities and are fighting insurance companies. And I mm. think, you know, what I experienced in the past is really a metaphor for what I'm going through now, which is advocating for the individuals that I feel have been, you know, treated unfairly or perhaps unjustly and need to have an advocate to support them through what can be, you know, very traumatic processes for them because being denied your disability benefits and being denied the ability to have a source of income and, you know, having the ability, the energy, the, the, the you know, the mental strength to fight a, an insurance company can mm -hmm. be incredibly difficult. So I do see that as a metaphor for those original experiences that I went through. And I think all of those experiences that I had have kind of pushed me towards this career path. Right. Really interesting. And, you know, I've, I've got some personal sort of family experience in, in dealing with um, insurance companies and, and then the disability law sphere that I'd love to touch on in just a second. But given that you were an internationally trained lawyer and you moved to Canada, I almost feel obligated to ask, what was that specific journey like? What was your accreditation like? I know it was um, much earlier than, you know, the sort of the guests that I've interviewed already. So I'm wondering if we can sort of compare and contrast what your accreditation steps were versus what they are today. I am pretty sure that there are a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. I think the big difference between then and now, based on my experience, is the support systems right. that are available out there. When I first um, started my NCA process, I did not know a single person who was engaging in the process. Right. There were no groups that provided any guidance with respect to how to go about the process or um, any resources whatsoever about what to expect. So, uh, you know, I felt I was largely in the dark when I arrived. So I feel that has changed mm. significantly with, you know, podcasts like your podcast <laughs> and many yeah. other resources that I know have come into play. But, you know, for me, it was an interesting journey. So when I arrived, I, obviously I was already a qualified lawyer and I had I had completed my schooling, my articling, my board exam, and I had started to practice as an associate. So at the time when I left, my departure was really, you know, it was bittersweet. Like I was working at a large national firm in South Africa, um, which is now a part of actually Norton Rose. Ah. And I had successfully sort of cycled through four rotations of my articles. And I had been offered a position with the insurance partner at the firm that, you know, everybody wanted to work for, which was such, you know, such an honor and so delightful. Mm. Um, but essentially at that point in time, I was so conflicted because I didn't feel that I could continue on 
living in, you know, in South Africa. And so even though I had reached a pinnacle in terms of um, where I was positioned in my career, I knew that I, I had to sort of make this pivot. And so, you know, that's when I found myself coming to Canada and, and, and starting the process of the uh, NCA um, conversion. So mm. When I arrived, um, you know, like many people, I was sort of juggling many competing demands. And I remember getting a letter from the NCA telling mm. me that I had 10 examinations that I had to write. Mm. <laughs> I remember just being completely shocked by that. You know, yeah. I, I sort of was stunned that none of my past experience, having, you know, having studied for many years having articled and practiced as an associate seemed to sort of be considered in this process. Mm. And I wrote an appeal sort of suggesting that perhaps I could reduce the number of examinations. And I received a letter back basically saying, you know, consider yourself really lucky that we didn't send you back to school. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, at the time, I, I think I was quite um, taken aback by having to do that many courses. And I, you know, I think it was largely to do with the fact that perhaps at the time there wasn't as much understanding of the commonalities between mm. the systems. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, when I studied constitutional law at university, we used Peter Hogg's book on really? constitutional law. Oh, <laughs> that, well, there you, you know, go. Was, yeah, exactly. So the South African constitution was modeled on, you know, the Canadian constitution to a large extent. So a lot of our resources came from Peter Hogg's book. Hmm. And so when I came to Canada and I was told one of the 10 courses was constitutional law, hmm. uh, you know, I was really puzzled. But um, obviously, you know, one has to do what one has to do. And so you know, you, you know, you put your nose to the grindstone and you do what you have to do. But, you know, at the same time, I was looking for work because as, you know, as a new immigrant, you obviously have to contend with the fact that you're now in a place where the cost of living is very different from where you come from. Mm -hmm. And also the, you know, the cost of the examinations that you have to complete can be quite challenging when you're coming you know from a different place so I had to find work and um, I eventually found work um, in a in a small general practice in Markham and it was it was really busy I you know I was mm. working and studying and for the next sort of 16 months I barely saw my husband we had only been married for about six months before leaving for Canada Right. So, it, you know, it was an interesting time, but frankly, you know, I was very relieved to have found a job because the process had been challenging at the outset, you know, as an individual coming from another country, you're, you're somewhat of an unknown entity, right? You have no network, you have no connections. So, yeah. um, you know, I was always faced with questions in interviews about my Canadian experience and what my plans were. So, you know, that was interesting. But that juggling process of trying to study for the examinations while working, it, it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if asked, you know, would I go back and do it differently? Absolutely not. And even mm -hmm. though it was incredibly challenging, I think, what it did for me was it helped me get into the Canadian market much sooner, right. which essentially established a path for me that was much easier to navigate as time went on. Right. 
Yeah. And as you're speaking, Leanne, I, I, there are a lot of similarities. You know, I speak to people who literally just received their NCA certificate of qualification and they're identifying um, the same challenges and, and sort of some of the same perplexities, like, you know, speaking with some lawyers who have had a decade's worth of experience in running their own practice um, and feel sort of perplexed at the idea of having to write so many exams and also trying to find a way to leverage their experience that they had in a new country, in a new jurisdiction where they don't know anybody and where the, you know, the, the questions do arise, what Canadian experience do you have? And they feel sort of in saying, well, none, but <laughs> I do have a lot of other experience that is really valuable. Um, so I think there's some challenges that I've, when I've spoken to people about trying to get that across to potential employers is this experience can lend in my ability to help XXYZ firm um, because of this kind of thing. But it, it is interesting that you, you're identifying a lot of the things that um, people even in 2020 are experiencing. So the, again, the journeys are different, but really um, some of the pitfalls and, and struggles are shared. Yes. And I think what was very helpful for me um, at the time was really sort of pivoting my focus. So mm. when I was asked about Canadian experience, I changed the conversation to focus on, you know, the value that I could add to the company. Yeah. So, mm. you know, looking at what attributes would make me a good candidate for the, you know, for the position, like reframing the conversation. Um, and I, I think something that always, you know, stays with me to this day, and I think it's something that translates in every area, and that is, you know, something that we have as individuals that have moved to a new country that we can use to persuade prospective employers to hire us is, you know, we have many positive attributes. We, you know, we demonstrate in that move perseverance, you know, tenacity, mm. flexibility, resilience, malleability, and all of those things are really important characteristics for, you know, an employer in hiring a prospective employee. So I think for me, what helped me was essentially making sure that anytime I was having a conversation about my sort of lack of Canadian experience, I would inject into that conversation uh, what I felt my experience gave me and how that would translate into making me a desirable employee. So, you know, that mm. for me was a helpful exercise. Yeah, that's great. Great advice too for people listening who feel stumped or stuck um, in trying to find a way to appeal to employers or law firms here in Canada. Um, so just just pivoting a little bit, Leanne, um, this podcast I'd like to think can serve as information gathering for listeners, um, you know, some inspiring messages, obviously, but also maybe a little bit of commercial awareness. So learning about different areas of practice in Canada and, and how they, how they're, how the lawyers who are operating within those practice areas in Canada work <laughs> in some ways to give people a perspective. So I'm curious about your work in disability law. Um, you know, my mom's physically disabled and she, I'm sure she won't mind me saying she had to go through quite 
a laborious process. And, you know, luckily she was strong-willed and she didn't need, I mean, luckily, I suppose, didn't, didn't use the services of a lawyer, but definitely there were many times in her journey where I thought, wow, if, if there were people who didn't have the resources she had to rely on, um, it would be really difficult to do on your own, especially if you feel a little bit bullied or pressured by insurance companies uh, or even employers um, looking to, to and you, you, oh, you constantly kind of feel like you have to validate your own disability, which becomes a little bit insulting in some ways, um, you know, because people feel it, it's sort of you're starting off on a foot where the assumption is you're not as disabled as you say. So now you prove it. <laughs> and that, you know, like that's my personal experience with it. And I'm curious about um, your work in the field of disability law, um, just, bro- just broadly speaking, sort of, you know, whether or not my experience with my mother is, is something that you see a lot of. Yes. So, um, you know, when clients first approach me, they're often in, you know, they're in a very dark place. Mm. Obviously, you know, the, the individuals that do seek assistance are, you know, often physically or mentally unwell. And, you know, in addition to that, they've, they've lost often their only source of income, right? Mm -hmm. They might be on the verge of losing their homes. They might be on the verge of losing everything that they've worked all their lives for. So, you know, that can be incredibly stressful. And then, as you say, you know, that's often exacerbated by the fact that they, you know, have been harassed by an insurance company insisting that they validate their disability. And then, you know, the employers that also jump on the bandwagon because often when an insurance company has denied a claim, you know, the claimant will receive a letter from the employer suggesting perhaps that they have to return to work because the insurance company hasn't um, determined that they meet the test for disability. So often when, you know, a client is coming to see me, they have, you know, they've lost confidence in themselves. They've lost confidence in the system. They may be dealing with relationships that are breaking down. A lot of them may have, you know, been traumatized in the course of of their lives. They have trust issues. So, you know, for me, an absolutely crucial and essential part of what I do is gaining a client's trust and really helping them navigate the litigation process, but doing so in a way um, to ensure that their, you know, their dignity, their autonomy, their mental health is preserved. And mm. that's critical to what I do because I, I see my role as a disability lawyer as someone who is there to empower clients in the process Mm. and help them move towards an acceptance of, you know, the the litigation process and guiding them towards, you know, the final outcome, which is hopefully a resolution of their case. So, you know, on a day-to-day basis, it's, it's analyzing medical information, it's contractual interpretation and analysis, it involves reviewing claims files and critiquing, you know, decision-making processes. I'm always looking for the golden nuggets, which are, you know, the breaches of good faith by insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm applying legal principles to factual circumstances. And then, you know, my favorite part of all is I'm advocating for clients in the context of, you know, a discovery or a mediation or a hearing or a trial. And I say that's, you know, that's the best part of what I do. Um, 
because I feel that that is a process where you can give your client a voice and you can tell their story and you can empower them by sharing what is actually going on with them and how their lives have actually, you know, led them to this point rather than um, the insurance company simply focusing on or, you know, cherry picking pieces of information, which uh, feeds into their narrative and their view of the client. So being able to present the client's story is it's such a wonderful experience to be able to engage in and can be so cathartic for a client in that process. Right, of course. And, you know, as you're speaking, I can definitely see um, a real place for, for advocates of people with disability who are, for lack of a better word, obviously being bullied. Um, you mentioned litigation. I'm curious um, if you could come up with a percentage of how many of your clients eventually um, pursue litigation, like how many times um, has mediation or, or sort of a back and forth negotiation with insurance companies or a sharing of discovery, things like that, not worked, where then it has to go to litigation? Is that often or not as often? So when I say, you know, litigation, I'm referencing the process as a whole. Mm. Like, you know, I think um, when we're sort of talking about moving on to a different stage, um, I would sort of term that sort of the trial stage or the pre-trial stage. And I think with that stage, we're not looking at a large percentage and that, you know, that's a good thing. And and I Mm -hmm. feel like that's a testament to, um, you know, the successes that we do have in conveying messages about our clients and their experiences. And, you know, also I think it comes down to having done this for many, many, many years we know who our adversaries are and we know how they think and we know how to present information to them in a way that it will be received so that we can get a better outcome for our client. But there are cases that do have to go to a pretrial or to a trial. Um, You know, they're not the norm. And generally speaking, um, as a lawyer, you want to make sure that you're always placing your client's best interests mm-hmm. above anything else. And so, you know, there are circumstances where the only option available for the client in terms of getting the best outcome is to proceed to trial. But then sometimes there are circumstances where the worst possible place for the client to be is at a trial. Right. And you have to make that judgment call continuously while still ensuring that you are advocating for that client's best interests at all times. Mm, Of course. Yeah. And, you know, in particular, also, I'd imagine the client's financial situation may be turbulent or, you know, you can't, not not reliable given where they find themselves, you know, battling an insurance company for for disability. So, yeah, I'm sure you'd have to probably take that into account as well. Yes, absolutely. All of those elements, you know, come into play when we're determining, you know, what would be in the client's best interests. And, you know, as lawyers also, we're always mindful of the fact that the decision maker is always the client. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, we have to respect that. And I think, you know, even more so in the area of disability law, because um, 
clients are going through so much. We're not talking about a business owner. And again, I, you know, I'm not taking away from anybody's experiences because everybody can have challenging experiences, but there's a difference between, you know, a business owner who's negotiating, you know, a contract versus somebody whose livelihood and, you know, very existence is essentially at stake. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you're describing the kind of work you do and all of the different elements that are involved, what jumped out to me was um, while, you know, there's contractual in- interpretations and, you know, looking for that golden nugget, um, you know, being a good sort of detective as a lawyer, it strikes me that people skills, relatability skills, um, communication with your client is one of the most important parts of what you do. Um, understanding where the client is, what the client's looking for, and how you can communicate effectively with that client so that the experience is beneficial for all. Would you say that's about right? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I think people often ask me that, you know, they say, what, you know, what makes a good lawyer or, you know, what do you need to become a lawyer? And, you often hear you, you need to be a strong advocate, you need to have good judgment, analytical skills, perseverance, tenacity, all those things, you know, are absolutely a part of what we do. But for me, I think what makes someone, you know, a good lawyer or a good advocate is is intuition. Mm. You know, you have to know how to read a room, you have to know how to read people, you have to know how to present information in a way that it will be received. So, you know, in my area of law, there are many recipients of information. My client is one, you know, the opposing lawyer, a mediator, a judge, all of these you know, our different audiences mm. and knowing how to convey information to those audiences um, and anticipating how they're, you know, how they will receive and process that information and adjusting accordingly is really critical. And, you know, you touch on a point which we feel as a law firm is is really critical and that's sort mm. of leveraging emotional intelligence. Right. And, you know, I am a strong believer in injecting humanity into sort of lawyer client interactions and that that doesn't detract from professionalism because Mm -hmm. you find sometimes that there's a disconnect and that there's a perception in the community in general of lawyers that, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not necessarily approachable. Sometimes they're not necessarily empathetic sometimes. And I think that's a disservice to lawyers as a profession, because I think it is, especially for what I do, it's that authenticity, it's that empathy, it's that, you know, emotional connection that from my experience empowers clients and makes the experience of going through litigation more positive for them. And when that happens, the end result that they experience is received more positively. Mm. And even though it may not be the result that they anticipate going into the process, if they have the opportunity to be heard and the opportunity to be understood, I think that goes a really long way to helping them through you know, navigating, dealing with an insurance company and dealing with litigation. Right. Of course. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, it's one of the most dark, it's one of the darkest times in their lives where everything is in flux, including their their financial security and future. 
Um, and so if there's, you know, if you can inject the human side of things and then I think that would probably, I mean, I can only assume, of course, and given my own personal experience with my mother, that goes a long way because insurance companies can come across as, and I think probably strategically quite cold and, um, you know, uh, forthright in, in what they're asking for without any empathy or any humanity, it seems. And so it sounds like um, in this particular area of law, the lawyer does wear many hats. And, and one of them is to inject the humanity um, so that I think, you know, from my interpretation of what you're saying, so that the client can feel um, empowered um, to, to pursue what they feel is owed to them. Absolutely. Well, uh, Leanne, this has been great. You, you answered um, one of the questions I like to spring on people. You know, I submit some talking points to pull back the curtain a little bit for the listener. Um, but I'd purposely avoid um, asking or having the question on the paper saying, um, would you do it all again? <laughs> you answered that and say, you said, absolutely, you would. Um, and because, you know, you go through so many different things, um, your experiences really make you who you are. And while there may have been difficult or challenging, confusing, frustrating, um, it's all worth it because it makes you um, in some ways stronger. Um, but I'm so I thought I'll, I'll pivot a little bit. Um, and I got to know about you through social media, LinkedIn. Um, you you do a great job of posting, and I, there was one particular link. Um, you had sort of ten points um, regarding a disability matter that was really interesting to me. Um, oh, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I have a genuine interest in the area, so um, I found that really interesting. I thought, wow, well, I have to reach out to Leanne. But it it strikes me that. Um, using social media as a sort of personal branding tool um, is getting more and more popular. And you, people, some people miss the mark, but some people are really effective at it. And I'm wondering um, how you view that. And I'm thinking about the candidates who are just completing their NCAs, maybe in the process of studying for their bar exam, um, you know, provincial bar exams, and they're looking forward into, okay, now what, you know, where am I going to work? How am I going to do it? And the advice always from me and from others who have, you know, the lawyers that I've, I've interviewed are saying, always have one eye on the ultimate goal, which is, you know, legal practice and obtaining some work. And part of that, part of what you can do and what you're in control of is building your online brand, building your own personal brand. And um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that in your experiences with that. I will actually tell you a very interesting statistic for, for me. So, you know, mm. actually, ironically, the whole sort of social media presence is, is relatively new for me because mm -hmm. I had always worked in a law firm, um, you know, working for other people before. And so it's a very different dynamic from being your own boss and being an entrepreneur and being a business owner. But I, I don't think that there really should be a distinction. And I've only really learned that with time. But mm. when I started on LinkedIn, I had probably uh, maybe 56 individuals that I was connected <laughs> with. Yeah. And now I have, you know, over 1800 individuals that I'm connected with. And they're from, you know, very different, um, diverse communities and uh you know different areas of the law not in the law different professions and what i found so fascinating about the whole process mm. is 
how important it is to really build a presence, not just because you're looking for a job, not just because you're looking to connect with other people, but because you have something to say and everybody has something to say, you know, mm. whether it is um, because you're commenting on somebody else's posts and, you know, letting your viewpoint be known or you're creating your own. I think it's so critical to have a voice. And I think social media really provides that platform more so than anything else ever has because you control that narrative so it's mm. unlike you know being on television or being on radio and all those things where you don't know who you're interacting with on social media you know exactly who you are interacting with and that is very powerful so mm -hmm. when you are you know engaging in the process of coming to Canada or you're in Canada and you're starting your journey I think it is so important to reach out to people and connect with them. Mm -hmm. And I've had many, many people reach out to me, um, you know, since I've built this presence on social media where they've sort of said, you know, I've just come to the country or I've been here for a year. I really want to touch base with you. And that to me is, is so phenomenal because I think even if I am not the person who is ultimately going to provide them with a job or an opportunity, first of all, I might know someone. Mm -hmm. And even if I don't know someone, I might know organizations that would be helpful for that person to connect with. So the more people you connect with, the better. It is honestly, you know, it is challenging at first because you're sort of coming out of a comfort level of, you know, should I reach out to this person? Will they respond to me? Sure, there are going to be people who will not respond to you. But my experience is most people do respond. And there is a desire to connect. And so the more people you connect with, the larger your network will be when the time comes for you to look for opportunities. Right. And so that is so critical. I can't emphasize that enough. Mm, great. Yeah, I think, you know, the the advent of technology is probably one of the biggest things that's changed from when you were job seeking um, back when you when you first sort of got accredited to now. It must look so different. Um, and it's adapting to the technologies that are that you can use to leverage your experience and your unique message, your unique voice, as you say, and, you know, the ability to connect with so many people. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. So always, you know, the, the suggestion is to to get on board with social media, even if, you know, <laughs> you're an advocate for less technology and you put your phone away. It is a tool that you can use to to help further your career or to even to help get your, you know, get one foot in the door. Absolutely. And I think what's happening more and more is that, you know, prospective employers are looking at what people say about themselves and their interests on social media. I know mm. it's not out there overtly that that is something that happens, but I think it is something that does happen. Sure. And I think that, um, you know, for a prospective employer, for you to, to be demonstrating interests and areas that sort of align with your employer, that goes a long way to telling your employer about you and ultimately creating a fit 
that's going to have some longevity. So, you mm. know, it's, it's useful in so many ways. And as you know, as someone who did not grow up with technology, mm-hmm. if I can do it, anyone can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, for the listeners, um, if you haven't started already, build your LinkedIn profile, connect with Leanne um, and start start that way. Perhaps we can start small and and grow. And there's no, you know, of course, there's there's no exact science to this. But what I think it's important is is to just get involved in some way, um, as is usually the case in in being successful in in many different ways. Um, it's it's the first step is always to get involved and maybe push that comfort space that you have a little bit. Um, outside <laughs> go a little bit outside your comfort zone um, and learn um, how to use that social media space to your advantage and I think that'll work great well Leanne that'll do it for us on this episode um, thanks so much for for sharing your story um, and also for sharing a little bit about what disability lawyers do and and more broadly what makes effective lawyers in Canada my pleasure Anton and thank you so much for having me it was delightful to speak with you that does it for episode 27 of a shot of life i'd like to thank leanne for taking some time to speak to me and and you know share her story which was actually quite riveting really interesting to hear how leanne made the decision to become a lawyer and what personal experiences led to that decision and while she qualified quite some time ago now back in 2002 i think those motivations and you know, the anxieties around immigrating and, and choosing Canada as an end destination, I think a lot of people can draw a lot of comparisons to. So um, again, I'll include Leanne's um, LinkedIn profile link to in this uh, description of the podcast. And I invite everybody who wants to, to reach out um, to connect and perhaps have a coffee once COVID restrictions lift and, and uh, yeah, share your story as well. And until next time, we'll talk again.